You just have to figure out how to talk to the model and extract that creative value the same way a great leader or a great CEO in a startup has to figure out how to extract that creative value from the early employees that decide to follow that mission and join that team. You are listening to the Product Builders Podcast. Each week on the show, we bring you conversations with experts and innovators building digital products. Our conversations help you gain behind the scenes insights into building some of today's most innovative companies. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more at productbuilderspodcast.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Product Builders Podcast. This is your host, Mark Garcia, and joining me on the show today is Travis Boudreau. Travis is the co-founder and CTO of Azure Games, a game studio creating some of the leading RPG games on the market. Travis, great having you on the show today. How's everything going? Amazing. It's great to be with you, Mark. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me today. We have an exciting conversation ahead of us, but before we dive into today's topic, would love for you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and your background. Hi, everyone. I'm Travis Boudreau. As Mark said, I'm the CTO and co-founder here at Azure Games. We're building our first action RPG title, codenamed Project Legends. I'm a software engineer by trade. I've been an uh, engineer and technology leader for the past 20 years. I've mostly worked in marketplaces, primarily leading the development of the Elance Private Talent Cloud, which is now part of Upwork, then building out Waiter, a regional food delivery company, taking it public, scaling product and engineering there from three people to 75, and building out the technology platform for Swimply, the Airbnb of swimming pools. And when I'm not building. I love angel investing. I've made about 35 angel investments to date, primarily focused on Web3, AI, marketplaces, consumer, and health and fitness and longevity. Awesome. And you had touched on a little bit of what Azure Game does, but can we start with some basics there? Can you tell us a little bit more about the company, what they do, what kind of games you're building? Yep. So we were founded in 2022. Our CEO, Mark Otero, is an experienced game designer. Mark's built eight RPG titles in the past. Uh, His last RPG, while he was the GM of Capital Games at Electronic Arts, was Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. It was the highest grossing mobile free-to-play game in EA's history. We came together at the beginning of 2022 to build a new RPG studio primarily focused on free-to-play games for Western markets, largely inspired by what we had seen in the market. We take a lot of inspiration from Genshin Impact, from Baldur's Gate, from Legend of Zelda. One of the things that we're primarily focused on, though, is in building action RPG titles for more core fantasy Western-themed players. We're building Project Legends, our first title, which is dark fantasy original IP that the studio is developing in parallel to the technology of the game. You answered a bunch of questions I already had. I was going to ask what games are out there on the market that we might be able to look at. So thank you for that information. And just to get a little bit more into your background, you mentioned you're the CTO. So what does your role look like specifically at Azra? So I primarily focus on how the company is adopting AI across all disciplines. We're building some tools ourselves to help accelerate our ability to create content, 
building AAA video games is really expensive. The creation of content and some titles runs north of $100 million. And our goal is to build as great a AAA experience as possible at as much of a fraction of the cost leveraging AI technologies. My primary day-to-day is being knee-deep in the AI space, seeing what new tools are coming to market, making build versus buy decisions, what are third-party vendors that we should be using, where can we add some unique differentiation, and this justifies building tools. Yeah, so that's primarily where I spend most of my time these days. Cool, and I know you dropped my keyword for this episode, AI. That is what we're going to dig into today. But before we get there, I have dipped my toes into the world of game development, and there are some parallels and overlaps with product design, but developing something like an RPG game is so vastly different from my own experience. What does the process look like from start to finish? What are the key stages and milestones that go into game development, if you can sum that up in a nice, neat little package? I know what you're referring to because it is extremely similar and yet at the same time very different to traditional consumer product development. I often describe it as gaming is sort of like a superset of consumer product development. Everything that you do in traditional consumer product development, you do in game development, but you have the additional complexities and costs that come with both creating stories and the visual content that goes with it. So most people tend to make the parallel that it's more like developing a movie. You see a lot of inspiration in lots of studios that follow processes that go into creating blockbuster movies. AAA titles will often use processes and production techniques that you would see from blockbuster titles, blockbuster like summer movie titles. But I think it's really interesting to me because AI is sort of a forcing function now for teams doing more with less, for building content cheaper, for hitting quality with much smaller teams much faster. I've seen an explosion in cloud computing infrastructure tools over the last 10 years. The way that you would build a mobile consumer product in 2023 is vastly different from the way you would have started building a product even in 2015, 2016. And so we're seeing the the same things happen in the video game industry. The only thing is that You can think of these tools, the different AI models, whether it's a language model or an image model and now 3D models, as being a layer of fidelity on top of reality. It's creating or invoking a new world, language models through text and diffusers through image and then other techniques for 3D. When you think about the content that exists on the internet, the greatest abundances of text and then of images, and then of video and 3D content. And so the models on 3D content are a bit behind, but rapidly catching up. And I think what a lot of people don't quite realize yet is that over the next five years or so, you're going to see sort of this intersection or merger of traditional consumer mobile development with video game development. 
because the cost of building this content is going down, is becoming much cheaper. You can build the same quality of content with 10 people that you could with 20 or 30 a year ago. And in a few years with 10, you'll be able to do what you could with 50 or 100. I love how you noted that you're able to do more with less. One of the really cool things in prepping for this conversation was that you use AI to help facilitate the creative process and to help facilitate, let's say, efficiency on your team. Can you dive deeper into the specifics of how you might be doing this? And it sounds like there might be different models for language versus image versus 3D. So would love your insight there. With everything that we end up doing, we start with the most basic approach. We don't try to build a tool first. We first prototype with something that already exists. A lot of times that ends up being prototyping. What can we use stable diffusion for to get much further than we, we ever thought in terms of creating a piece of concept art or even a production game asset? And with text as well, whether it's figuring out game mechanics or exploring an idea for a certain type of character or building the backstories and the lore that go with those characters. I think a lot of people don't realize that in a lot of video games, if a game ships with 20 or 30 playable hours of content, those teams most likely for the 20 or 30 hours of content that was published created hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of stories and content that build the backstories for everything that goes into that. And that's extremely time-consuming. So we start out with chat GPT conversations, modeling out concepts. And then we go a little bit further and say, once we find something that we realize, okay, these are the prompts that we need to get really good content out of chat GPT. The algorithms are processes that we need to follow. There's an abundance of papers that get published every day, open source, on different models that people use, how to chain different prompts together to structure and manipulate the, the output of the content to get higher quality content, better summarized content, content that more reflects professional creative writing. We start with a hypothesis. We then iterate and experiment in the tools that exist. And once we find something that achieves the quality that we want, we then start to attack it from the angle of how do we augment the creative staff with something that you know maybe isn't quite an AI agent yet, but is the primitive early form of a co-pilot that can assist people and actually take a lot of the heavy lifting and repeatability off of them so that they can get the consistent results and turn them into curators and editors in the creative process, not just creators as well, so that they can look at 10, 20, 50 times the content that they normally would have looked at at even a fraction of the cost. And so we tend to take that first principle approach to everything that we do on the creative side now. And so far, we've reduced our concepting cost by over 60% in the last year by using these tools. I think there's even much more room for cost reductions. But the one thing that I generally find that you won't actually get out of the AI is 
you're likely not going to have it make the decision for you. You have to come with a strong opinion of what actually is good so that you can shape the content that comes out of it. Otherwise, you won't be prescriptive enough and you will get a huge variety, a lack of consistency, and most likely become frustrated with the process and feel like these tools don't actually make the process better. 60% is a a huge (laughs) reduction in cost. So that's amazing that you've worked out a process that uses AI, but still allows your team to be as creative. And you just mentioned that one of the things AI won't do is help make the decisions, right? So I'm curious to know how you have in your process defined what is considered, let's say, like an AI-specific task versus one that requires more of the human touch and the creativity aspect. Is there a clear delineation between when AI stops being useful and when your team has to take the, the helm? Or is it just a collaborative process throughout? I mean, it is very collaborative, but I think a good framework for this is that game teams often think about games as being in various stages of development, concept, pre-production, production, and then live ops is the way teams are operating games post-launch. I think that's a very useful framework for AI. And I think it's a framework that I hadn't seen as explicit in consumer mobile development. I think a lot of consumer mobile startups, you start out as a two or three person team, you start out as an idea, and really concept and pre-production are just very well-defined slices of pre-product market fit. So it's the things that consumer mobile teams have done for a decade, but it's very deliberate around the language. It's very prescriptive about the behaviors and the things that you're doing in each of those phases. And so I generally find that you can use AI differently at each of those stages. So you can, in concepting, be less prescriptive. You can say, I don't actually know what I want to build yet. What I need is an assistant to you know, give me a million wild, crazy ideas with really high-quality examples that feel like they're 70 80% of the way to production quality. And this is the kind of thing that you would have concept artists and concept writers in the traditional process doing. You would maybe review one piece of content or a handful of pieces of content from that person over the course of a week. And now we're reviewing 50,000 pieces of concept, or we're creating about 50,000 pieces of concept art a day and reviewing thousands of pieces of concept art. And when we start in the concept phase, we start very wide. Whoever's running that creative process is then every iteration, they're narrowing the scope of the content. They're making decisions around, this was good, this wasn't good, this was good, this wasn't good. I want more of this, I want less of this. I want all of this, I want none of this. Run it again. Give me a new version of this content. Is it better or worse? So it is a much tighter feedback loop, a very scientific application of the creative process. And to me, I think, When you look at the greatest creators, when you hear the stories about how they create, a lot of them have followed this process naturally. You hear tons of stories about Dave Chappelle and other comedians who basically use the stage 
in the year leading up to their big specials as live A-B testing, testing each joke, iterating on it, testing how they inflect on this point versus that point, taking this line out. So the scientific process is not foreign to the creative process. Some of the best creators have used it. All we're doing is we're using code now to work with humans to tighten that feedback loop and make it much, much faster to get larger volumes of content in times that were just impossible to get a year, two years, five years, and 10 years ago. What is really interesting about what you just said is talking about tightening this feedback loop. I haven't really heard anyone position it that way, and it really makes a lot of sense. I've had a lot of conversations about AI and is it going to replace the creative process? And someone has said to me, you know, AI is just really as smart as the person who puts the prompts in, right? So if you don't know how to use it well, AI is not going to do a good job either. And AI learns through content. So you also have to feed it content. Someone's got to feed the machine. And so thinking of it as a feedback loop and learning how to manipulate the feedback through prompts is a really cool way of uh, thinking about usage of AI in your process. I like the point that you made that the quality of the content that comes out is only as good as the quality of the questions that go in. And I think this is something that we see in high-performing teams and the best people that we've you know, worked with throughout our careers. The best engineers that I've worked with haven't always been the ones who were the best at writing code. A lot of times, especially in early-stage startups, they were the people who asked the best questions. They were the people who had great filters to figure out what work actually mattered and what work didn't. I think the thing that people struggle with a lot for anyone who, you know, is resistant to embracing this new way of working is that these models are, they're a simplification and a, a partial reproduction of everything humans have historically done. They don't necessarily have emotions, are not like imbued with a creative soul, but they are complex algorithms that abstract all of the human creativity that went into the models that were trained. If a model is trained and it captures 20% of all of the human creativity that exists on the internet, well, in that model, you now have the potential for that 20% of human creativity. You just have to figure out how to talk to the model and extract that creative value the same way a great leader or a great CEO in a startup has to figure out how to extract that creative value from the early employees that decide to follow that mission and join that team. Yeah, I've had this come up a lot and it's asking the right questions and it's not about just the end goal, it's about the journey to get there and understanding when to say yes, when to say no, when to filter things out. So I love that you've reiterated that because I feel like it's relevant across all sorts of industries, not even just product and gaming, but anything that you might be doing is, are you asking the right questions to achieve your goal? So in the process of using AI in your workflow, have there been moments where you've been surprised by what's been produced? Has AI come up with some just really extraordinary things that maybe wouldn't have come up otherwise without using that technology? I think something that I've worked with a couple of the creative folks on over the last few weeks really sort of always shocks me. And I think I make this analogy back to sports and basketball 
in across every sport, there are these advanced saber metrics that talk about players and how they impact winning. And so like in basketball, you have different type of players. You have someone like Steph, who is a one in a generation type player who can take high volume, but still be extremely efficient at it. But then you have a whole cohort of players who can put up 20 or 30 points a game, but they're going to lose some efficiency the more volume you give them. And then they get labeled as volume shooters. I sort of had this epiphany working with some of the creators that we were trying out these new character concepts. And we have this tool where we seed the tool with one idea and then does a bunch of work to turn that one sentence prompt into basically a, a very brief bio of a character and then take that brief bio of a character and turn that into thousands of pieces of concept art. And when I review the, the output of that concept art to see are the changes that we're making to these tools, are they getting better or worse? I'm sort of always shocked that you find the, the value, you find the, the thing that's interesting when you are not expecting it. It's on the, the 5,000th image that I'm like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. It's so much like every other piece that came out, but it has something that's just a little bit different. And I'm left with this sense that at this point, it's going to become a volume game, right? That the same way that startups in the late 2000s and early 2010s differentiated themselves, separated themselves from the pack by just being faster and getting more repetitions per unit of time in. I think the teams that separate themselves over the next 10 years are going to be the teams that use these tools to just get 10 times, 50 times, 100 times more shots on goal at higher quality with these tools, at least in the content creation side. I can definitely echo that sentiment. I feel like there's this big perception with AI that it's going to replace certain roles within industries. And I think when it first came out, there was so much unknowns about, well, we've created such a powerful piece of technology. But now that I've used it, at least personally, and it sounds like you could say the same, it's, I don't think it'll replace anyone. I think it'll help facilitate process. And as you said, help with kind of the volume of content. And at the end of the day, humans are the decision makers and we're the ones that know what we need to end up with. And so I think it's great that you found a workflow that works and you're using AI to build really creative process and help your team out. We've talked, obviously, a lot about the positives of AI. It sounds like you've already figured a lot of the things out. I'm sure you've had some failures along the way. So I'm curious, what are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered just getting this worked into the work that you do? Yeah, I think we've run probably over 100 experiments already, maybe even more over the last six to nine months. I tend to think that most of them fail. But again, it's very much like a numbers game because when you find the one that works, you unlock potentially extremely scalable asymmetric returns. So it's very much like building a portfolio of bets if you were a VC or you know um, a high growth early stage investor. And I think 
if there's anything that I reiterate throughout this entire process, it's just that everything that you do with AI at this stage should be considered an experiment. There should be nothing that you consider sacred to the way that you have worked in the past. There is no rule that is unbreakable at this point. And so I think like the people that embrace that the most are the people that are going to put up a lot of experiments. A lot of those experiments are going to be failures, but the ones that pay off are going to be big bets that pay off 100x, 200x, 500x, 1000x returns. I love that thought that anything you do should be considered an experiment and there's going to be a lot of failures. I've used AI in my workflow as well. Definitely a lot of hit and misses there, but you can learn a lot from the failures as well. You can see these outputs that aren't hitting the mark and you can refine what you're trying to get to. And I think that helps with the process as well in terms of just being a creative thinker, seeing what's wrong helps you know what's right. Yeah, I think to sort of go back to the concepting tool that we've been working on lately, you know, it's really interesting because the system beneath that takes this one prompt and turns it into thousands and thousands of pieces of art, it, it has a rules-based system beneath it to enforce some structure, right? So I told you like, like a creative person that's driving it, they start out very broad, then they get a bunch of content and then they learn from that content. What do I want to keep? What do I want to throw away? So there's a rules-based system that they're giving feedback to that's basically tuning the output. It's always interesting to me that one of the reasons I think it's a, a volume game at this point is just that a lot of times those very unique concept pieces that I don't think we would have found using the old process are actually happy accidents. They're rules that were misinterpreted or used language in a different way that then the language model picks up interprets, you know, somewhere else. So sort of just give an example of we had this culture that we were iterating on and we outlined the influences. And one of the influences is we had this mythical lion creature that we were just trying to see like what would happen if, you know, if they had a culture or religion based on this mythical lion similar to Aslan. Instead of like seeing the lion show up in the scenery, it ends up like creating this lion mask for a character. And it was like one of the most interesting pieces that came out of the whole process. And it was a misinterpretation of this rule. Now, this lion that we were exploring will never make it into the game. That'll never like actually be a part of the lore. Like we've already, you know, way moved on past that. But this mask. You know, this mask was so visually compelling that it was inspirational and it may become something in some other form somewhere else in the game. That's really cool. A happy accident and AI just generating something that you wouldn't have thought of on your own by mistake, like you said. When you think about the creative process, so much of what humans create that's great are happy accidents. People who are pulling from past references, past ideas, blending them together, mixing them together. And they end up achieving a result that maybe wasn't the original intention, but still was something that was a little bit magical and a little bit interesting and different from anything that we've ever seen in the world before. 
Yeah. And I mean, when you think about the most successful creative teams, there are ones that have a wider breadth of experiences and backgrounds and people who have just different thoughts and can bring that to the work. And not that AI is a person, but it can interpret language differently than we can. Maybe a little too strict, maybe abstract, but whatever it might be, it, it has its own point of view, if you will. For those who are looking to implement AI into their workflows or just start experimenting with it and who have just been apprehensive to do so, what advice would you give to get started and to maybe start building this in a little bit at a time? You know, there are a couple different paths. I think one, it's just really important to get some reps in with working with language models and figuring out how to ask good questions and how to iterate on an idea. The same way that you learn how to iterate on ideas with a team, you have to learn how to iterate on ideas with a language model, I believe, fundamentally. And so even if you abstract away how it applies to your business, I think it's really good to just get some reps in and run these experiments with something like ChatGPT. And I think, you know, ChatGPT, Bard, Claude from Anthropic, any chat interface on a language model is really the best place to get a generalized experience for like how to start thinking this way and how to iterate through these ideas. That's sort of like the first principle. If you don't build that foundation, if you don't learn how to ask good questions and how to interact with it, then everything that you run subsequent to that is going to be ultimately at a lower quality. And then I think it's really context dependent on the person, the business, the opportunity. I've seen people use it as a collaborative partner to attempt to solve problems in their business. I've seen people use it for generating huge volumes of content. I think people have to look at their business and find that intersection right of where is the strength of this tool from the experiments that I've already run and where does that align with the biggest problems or opportunities in my business. And then you just need to lean in and attack that and run a hundred experiments, run a hundred experiments in a month, in a week, in a day, if you can, I guarantee you'll learn something and you'll probably get very frustrated along the way. <laughs> but I think if you haven't started yet and you have some apprehension or you have a bias against these tools potentially being useful, you just have to suspend that for a period of time. You have to put that bias on a shelf. There's another principle from you know, some of the, the best luminary thinkers that I respect of steel manning your opponent's argument. Not setting up a straw man that's easy to defeat, but setting up a steel man. And I think if you are a skeptic on the quality of AI and how it can work in the creative process, the most important thing for you to do is not set it up as a straw man, but set it up as a steel man and prove to yourself that you are actually right, that your biases are correct and that it can't. And the only way you can do that, I fundamentally believe, is by putting volumes of iteration. I believe anyone who takes that seriously goes on that journey and is very deliberate and experimental in their iterations will ultimately come out the other side with use cases for applying these tools 
to their life, to their business, and to the needs of their customers. Those are some really great tips. And one thing I'll add there, which I feel aligns with everything you've said is, and it goes back to this idea that AI is going to replace workers. I think you got to get out of the mindset that AI is a replacement for the work that we do, because maybe sure, in some cases it can be, but when you think of it more of as a tool to augment the work you're already doing, it can really empower your process. Like you said, whether it's a volumes game and you just need ideation and volume of concept to just get your mind at a place. I think when you are open to using it as a tool to help you versus fearing it as something that will replace you. It's a big shift in how we can really empower ourselves with the technology. Yeah, fundamentally agree there. I just cannot reiterate enough that the fears that we're all, you know, going to be replaced are in the very least so much further out than we all sort of realize that we're only hurting ourselves by being a late adopter in the situation. Very true. Speaking of future, what's on the horizon? Are there any big things that you're planning for? Any big tech that you're going to be implementing? Anything we can look out for in the future? Yeah, so we are pretty much heads down on building the game right now. We are about to leave pre-production and go into full production where we've locked in all the core decisions of the game and are now basically on a march to finishing up all of the content that's going to go out in the very first release. The game will be releasing in 2025. We just finished up our fifth build of the game. It was our fifth internal build. And we're doing external playtesting with about 25 people this month. So if you go to Azure Games on X, follow and harass our social media managers. Maybe there's a shot that you can get into the earliest playtesting. And then from there, we'll be doing more closed playtesting over the next three to six months. And then from there, doing much more large-scale public testing of the game in numerous iterations. The same way that we iterate with our experiments on AI, the same way that startups iterate on their product, we're going to be iterating and shipping this game frequently to testers over the next 18 months or so before we go into full live ops. Awesome. Very excited to see what your team will be doing and to play this game when you launch it. And so I know we cover a lot of different information in these conversations, and we like to wrap up each episode with what we call our Majestic Bite, which is a key takeaway that you'd love our audience to walk away from. So Travis, what is your Majestic Bite? What do you want people to walk away with from this conversation? I feel like we've already touched on it for the last 30 minutes, but I would just leave this with everyone that the late, great Clayton Christensen wrote about companies often facing the innovator's dilemma of they've built something, they've done something successful, the world is changing around them, and the future is going to be different than what they've built. And they are now faced with this dilemma of disrupting themselves or leaning into that. And ultimately, people who choose to lean into what they've built and don't disrupt themselves, time and time again, we've seen the landscape filled with the shadows and skeletons of former great companies who wither away and people wonder what happened to those companies. Those are the companies who refuse 
to embrace the innovator's dilemma and disrupt themselves. And my trumpet, my clarion call for everyone is if you look at yourself as an individual company of one, we all face an innovator's dilemma when it comes to embracing AI, learning how we disrupt ourselves, augment ourselves with these tools and techniques that give us higher quality output at today, 1x, 2x, then next month, next year, 5x and 10x, and eventually, ultimately, 100x the output of what we're able to do. I think it's the only way forward. And I'll just reiterate, everyone should read The Innovator's Dilemma and learn how to apply it to their lives specifically in this context. That's a great bite. And my favorite thing about these bites is they're so applicable to everyone. It's not even just the gaming industry or the product design industry. I think anyone in any sort of position at any point in their careers can take that bite and apply it to themselves to really advance themselves in their knowledge and their process and just advancing in their career. So thank you for that. Absolutely. So Travis, where can people go to learn more about you or Azure Games? Is there anywhere you want to send them to? Yeah, you can find us at azuregames.com. If you're on X, you can find us at Azure Games. And anyone who wants to talk about AI, health, longevity, or gaming with me can find me on X at TJ Boudreaux. Awesome. We'll include those links as part of this episode. But Travis, it was great having you. Thanks for your time today. Amazing. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode insightful. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review. You can find more information and links to all the resources mentioned in today's episode at productbuilderspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Majestic Apps. We imagine, design, and build digital products. With clients like Chevrolet, AudioMac, IBM, Barefoot, and more, you can be sure you're in good hands. Reach out to us at MajesticApps.com.